Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. In October 2016, the World War I Historical Association hosted a World War I Centennial Symposium at the MacArthur Memorial. The symposium focused on the year 1916. The following is a presentation by author and retired CIA analyst Steve Sotheby on the topic, From Venice to London, Aerial Bombing in 1916. This talk is a continuation of the talk I gave a year ago in Lyle, Illinois. Last year I spoke on the history of aerial bombing up through the end of 1915, and so I'm going to continue that. Um, moving through 1916. Unlike the one a year ago, this is not really going to be a comprehensive history of aerial bombing in 1916. It became more complex, more sophisticated, and so I really don't have time to go through every single campaign. So I've selected a number of them that are interesting, and so we'll, we will talk about particular, uh, particular bombing campaigns. We're going to look at the bombing of Venice, by Austrian flying boats, Zeppelin raids against London and other parts of England in 1916, German bombing on the Russian front. I want to look at the bombing of Bucharest. Bucharest, Romania was a capital in addition to London and Paris, which was bombed during World War I. I want to spend uh, some time on, on my favorite topic, French bombing in 1916, and then conclude with Britain's first foray into uh, into strategic bombing done by the, by the Royal Naval Air Service. There are going to be some recurring themes in this presentation that I want you to, to keep an eye out for. We're going to talk about the role of naval aviation in bombing development, as we did a year ago, looking at 1915. Um, navies historically have taken a strategic view of warfare. Their jobs in large part had been, um, had always been economic warfare in a way, um, blockading ports, um, interdicting shipping belonging to the enemy, protecting the shipping of their own country. And so it was very natural that navies would look at the strategic aspects of warfare. And so when you get naval aviation, they tended to gravitate more towards strategic bombing than the armies did. So we're going to see a number of examples of that where, where navies really took the leadership in strategic bombing. Uh, another theme is that the party is over. Uh, in 1915, the bombers of all types, airships and airplanes, uh, did fairly well um, in, in being able to complete their missions without being hindered by fighters. By 1916, the fighters got more sophisticated and more numerous, and so this required a number of adjustments. So we're going to look at that. We looked last year at the introduction of two giant bombers the um, Russian Ilya Muromets bomber and the Italian Caproni. Um, we're going to look at other nations bringing giant bombers, giant multi-engine bombers in and using those also. And finally, we're going to see examples from two different air forces of, air of aircraft providing quick retribution for a country declaring war against them. So we're going to start with Austrian flying boats in the Adriatic. These were flown by the Austro-Hungarian Navy. And during the course of, 19, uh, of 1916, 
there were 74 different airplanes that, the, um, um, that were Austrian flying boats flying in the Adriatic. I just wanted to give you an idea of the size. Being a statistician, I kind of always wonder how big is it, um, how much is it, and, uh, and so this, this sort of helps me understand the scope of what we're looking at. So there were 74 different, different airplanes. Twelve of them were lost due to enemy action during 1916, so that's a fairly high percentage. And they flew out of four naval air stations in the Adriatic during the year. And I'll show you, uh, I'll show you maps presently. Um, being naval vessels, they attacked targets like ports, ships. They also did some, attack against, some attacks against uh, coastal army installations, artillery batteries, rail stations, things like that. Finally, they, they bombed Venice an incredible 42 times over the course of the war. This is, is really sort of an unknown aerial bombing campaign, but we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that. And finally, the, the flying boats also had an air interdiction role. They were used not only for bombing attacks against enemy ports and shipping, but they also were used to protect the Austrian Navy and Austrian shipping from attacks by the Italians and the French. This particular plane that you're seeing here is the L-135. Uh, it's a loner-built uh, flying boat, uh, serial number 135, and uh, it's, it has a very important role in history, and we'll talk more aboard about it presently. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three short time periods, one in 1914, one in 1915, and one in 16, and look at all of the bombing that was done during those short time periods. So I'm doing this to kind of give you an idea of the types of things that they were doing, the distances that they flew, things like that. I was kind of surprised to, f to learn that uh, there was a war between Austria and Montenegro. Um, it was not much of a war. Montenegro was pretty quickly overrun. But um, Montenegro was allied with Serbia, which um, the Austrians were, had, a, had a big beef with. So they were running flying boats out of their um, base at Kumbor in the Kataro Bay. And that's marked with a, uh, with a red and yellow star. This was 1914, so they weren't bombing very far away. They were bombing other things within the same large bay, including uh, notably Montenegrin artillery batteries on Mount Lovchen, which was overlooking the bay. They were also striking, in addition to artillery batteries, uh, bivouacs, uh, rail targets. They attacked one French cruiser, and they made a number of, of attacks on, on some of the coastal cities, um, notably Antivari. You've probably never heard of Antivari. It is now known as Bar Montenegro, and is a very nice Adriatic um, uh, resort town. That was attacked a number of times. Okay, so that's our first scenario of the three. Italy declared war on the Austro-Hungarian Empire on the 23rd of May, 1915. They made a secret agreement with the British and French that when they were ready, they would declare war and then start moving against Austrian territory that they had coveted for a long time, including the, the Trentino in the north and, Tri and the city of Trieste off to their northeast. So they made the secret agreement with the um, British and French, and the next day, an account of it appeared in a French newspaper. Um, so the secret was out. When they did declare war on the 23rd of May, the Austrians were ready. They bombed Venice 12 and a half hours 
after the declaration of war. So clearly they were reading the French newspapers. They attacked, uh, naturally, naval targets, Venice being an important port, dockyards, oil tanks, uh, the Venetian arsenal, various ships. And they also attacked other cities farther south, Ancona and Vasto, striking energy plants, gas and electric, a shipyard, an airship hangar. The Italians were using blimps as bombers, so they were trying to strike those while they were on the ground. And so these were all of the strikes that they were making in the first week after Italy declared war. From the port of Cumbor, where they were based in the Montenegro campaign, they were also striking Italian shipping farther south and to the south, southwest. Our third vignette is from 1916 itself. Um, we're looking at the attacks in, that were conducted in August and September. By this time, the Austrians have four naval air stations at Trieste, Parenzo, Pola, and Cumbor, um, most of them concentrated up in the north. The three up in the north um, all struck Venice during this two-month period, hitting several other sites to the north of it that were fairly close to the front lines. They actually uh, damaged a British submarine so badly that it was, that was, not, it was not worth it for them to repair it and, and struck a number of naval and military installations. From Cumbor, they were hitting shipping, actually patrol boats, in the Otranto Straits, which cut off the Adriatic Sea. That was the object of the patrol boats was to do that, so they were countering them. And they also sunk a French submarine just southwest of Cumbor. This was the first time that an aircraft had sunk a submarine. There were two Austrian flying boats, the L-135 that we mentioned and, and one other, um, that detected a submarine under the surface, um, not too far from Cumbor. So they went back to their base and landed and determined that it was not an Austrian one, that it was an enemy one of some type. And so they went back and bombed it. I have written in here that they, that they dropped, that the L-135 dropped two 50-kilogram depth charges. I put depth charges in quotes because when you say depth charges, you think of things that look like barrels that are flung out from the sides of ships. What these were actually were, were 50 kilogram aerial bombs that were fused so that they would explode 10 meters below the surface of the water. So the, L, <clears throat> the L-135 dropped its two 50 kilogram bombs. They hit seven meters away from the sub, one near the bow, one near the stern, and the sub disappeared. It was down underwater for about half an hour, and, uh, and what was going on was the French crew was finally able to get their pumps going, even though the sub was damaged. They got the pumps going, and so they resurfaced. At that point, the French crew, knowing that being in the sub was, was not tenable because it was only a matter of time before it went down again, they, um, they exited the sub, came out on the deck, and one of the officers started firing a machine gun at the, at the Austrian flying boats that were still circling. The L-135 flying boat dropped another small bomb at this, um, in, in, in indignation at being fired at, and, uh, and the French officer wisely decided to stop. I'm not sure if it was the splash from the bomb or if it was just the, the water flowing over the deck, but most of the French crew was washed overboard. At this point, the, uh, the flying boat pilots decided to act like seamen instead of like fighters. And so they landed next to the sub and they picked up the entire French crew. Every single one of them they got. 
and they waited there on the water with the 30, roughly, Frenchmen until an Austrian torpedo boat came up and it took the crew back to the, uh, back to the base at Kumbor. The, um, the two flying boats kept the two officers and flew them back. So they, they did manage to, uh, to save the entire French crew. They were, they were just seamen in trouble at that point. And so that's how they responded. We're going to move on now to Zeppelin raids on England. I've noted this is England and Scotland because they did conduct one raid on Edinburgh during 1916. In the picture, you have the um, new Zeppelin L-32, which was a new class of Zeppelin. It was a little more capable than the previous ones. And in the uh, lower photo, you've got a picture of, of bomb damage in, in England from a raid on uh, the 31st of July, 1916. In 1915, the Zeppelins were conducting an, a number of raids on, um, on England. And the tempo and lethality of these raids increased throughout 1916. You can see the Zeppelin, the number of raids themselves went up slightly, uh, but the number of sorties by Zeppelins were, was up very high, as were the uh, civilian casualties. I put in parentheses here that their successes only lasted until August 1916. I put successes in quotes because the Zeppelins were really very ineffective weapons. They were really baffled by the, uh, by the British blackouts. And so they were not bombing much of anything with any precision. So their successes are, were sort of, sort of qualified. This is a case of the party being over because there were no Zeppelins brought down over England until the, second of, the night of the 2nd of September, 1916. On that night, Captain Leif Robinson of the Royal Flying Corps shot down the airship, the Schutelance SL-2, I'm sorry, SL-11. During the intervening months, the British had developed new explosive and incendiary machine gun bullets, and so they were finally able to bring down a Zeppelin over England for the first time. Uh, so the Zeppelins had been raiding over a year and a half before they finally brought one down. The, um, actually, the site where this Zeppelin came down, Cuffley, just north of London, you can still see the monument that's there. There was a monument put up, and, and it, is, it is still there. After this, this airship came down on the night of the 2nd of September, very quickly, before the end of the year, five more Zeppelins were brought down, mostly by, by fighters with the new ammunition. Uh, some were brought down by anti-aircraft guns. This really broke the back of the Zeppelin offensive. They did continue flying airships, um, flying Zeppelins, and trying to bomb London as late as August 1918, but really at that point, Past, the, past September 1916, the Zeppelins were really more dangerous to their own crews than they were to the, to the populace of Britain. Okay, we're going to move on to air raids on the Eastern Front, both with airships and airplanes. The, uh, the German Army and Navy had used, um, had used airships as bombers and for reconnaissance, from 1915 on, maybe they started in 1914 even, but certainly 1915 on, and this continued through 1916. Generally speaking, on the Eastern Front, they would rotate Zeppelins in and out. Um, they might be Army Zeppelins, and then they would, they would have them off at the Western Front for a while and then bring them back, or Navy Zeppelins where they'd have them on the Eastern Front and then to the North Sea and back for a few months each time. So you had a few airships at any one time available for bombing. 
You also had the introduction of giant bombers. Um, as I said earlier, the, um, uh, the Russians had the Ilya Muromets a year earlier. The, the Italians had the Caproni multi-engine bomber. The Russians introduced, introduced their own giant bombers. Um, this particular one in the picture has three engines, um, and eventually these came to be the largest aircraft produced in World War I. Um, some, of the, some of the German giant bombers had a larger wingspan than a B-17. To give you an idea of the size, I marked the people in red. You can see the size of the people compared to the airplane. And in fact, you can see the size of these people compared to the size of these people, which gives you an idea of how long the wings were. Because the ones standing here next to the wings look much taller than, than the munchkins who are over here. So these were incredibly large aircraft. And in 1916, more and more countries started using them. Most of this, this work um, in English on the, um, the air raids on the Eastern Front was conducted by, by a man named Augie Bloom, who published an article in Over the Front in 1996. And so really, without that, we would have no sources in English, uh, really, on, on German bombing on the Eastern Front. So I've created this map that shows these blue elliptical things that look like Zeppelins are, um, are where the Zeppelin sheds were, the Zeppelin bases. Um, and any place you see a blue explosion, that is a place that the Zeppelins were bombing. The, um, the red and yellow crosses, these are supposed to make you think of an airplane viewed from above. Those were the bases, those were the two bases for the, uh, the German giant airplanes. And so any place there's a red star is a place that was attacked by those. And this is really, I, I, I wrote here that this is selected airship raids. Uh, according to Augie Bloom's article, the, uh, the records are, that are available are really sketchy. And so it really represents only a, only a sample of what's out there. Uh, but it should give you an idea of the types of distances they covered and what they were going after. Um, they did hit notable cities like Riga, now in Latvia, and Minsk. I think that's Minsk. It's hard to tell from this angle. Um, so they were hitting major cities in addition to places that were under control of the Russian army. I should have said the solid line that runs through the, uh, through the center of the map is, is, the, uh, is, the, is the front on the 1st of January, 1916. Okay, I want to go into the Romanian campaign, um, one which is not particularly well known um, to those of us in the West. Um, and we're going to start, as, as with all things, with a, with a map. I was able to get this wonderful 1917 map of, um, I'm sorry, 1913 map of the Balkans. You have Romania here in the middle. And to the northwest, you have the Austro-Hungarian Empire, including Transylvania in uh, Hungary. To the south, you have the other central power, Bulgaria. And then the allied powers, Serbia and Russia. Like Italy, Romania decided that it would be advantageous at this point to, de to declare war on the Central Powers because they had always coveted Transylvania. And they saw this as an opportunity to, um, to uh, capture that from Hungary. So they, declare, they declared war and started moving their forces into Transylvania and got 50 miles inside the border um, in, in pretty short order. The very next night 
after the declaration of war, Bucharest, the capital of Romania, was bombed by a zeppelin that had been based in, uh, in Bulgaria. So again, we've got an, an example of, of um, a very quick retribution. So the Romanians have moved into Transylvania, and very shortly after that, they were attacked from Bulgaria by the Danube army, which was commanded by General Mackinson. Um, and this army consisted of Bulgarians, Turks, and Germans. So they had that to contend with five days after they declared war. Um, they, they did manage, with the help of Russians and Serbians, to slow up that particular advance. This was probably one of the few times in Romanian history that they were happy to see Russian soldiers on their, on their uh, territory. But then the Germans and Austrians drove them out of Transylvania and just kept going and essentially just took over the country. They declared war in, at the end of August, and by the 6th of December, the German army occupied Bucharest. Um, over the next year, there was the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, so they were getting no more help from the Russians. And so on December 7, 1917, they asked the Central Powers for an armistice. Romania lost the war, but actually they won the peace because after the final armistice and everything was, was decided with the peace treaties, they were awarded Transylvania by the, uh, by the Allies and Transylvania is part of Romania to this day. So I want to talk about the German bombing in, in Romania. As I said, the records that, that Augie Bloom was able to find are, are kind of sketchy, but we know that at least four army zeppelins attacked Bucharest from bases in, in Hungary and Bulgaria. They also were attacked by Kagol 1, which was Germany's first bomber wing. They were also attacked, I'll show you a map shortly, and these bombing forces had virtually no opposition from the Romanians or any of their allies. Eventually, the French and the Royal Naval Air Service sent some air assets to help them out, but it was really too little too late. The Romanians, like the, like the British, were able to hinder the bombing somewhat with blackouts around Bucharest and with, uh, uh, and with an increase in, in anti-aircraft artillery. The photograph from Augie Bloom's article shows the Army Zeppelin LZ-101 at its base in Yamboli, Bulgaria. And since he's so important to this research, um, I'm, I have a picture here of, of the late Augie Bloom. He lived in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. Aircraft bombers that were used by Cargo one were quite decent multi-engine bombers for 1916. Um, they had the Friedrichshafen G2 and the AEG G3. So, as we did before, the Zeppelin-looking blue ellipses are the two bases, one in Hungary, one in Bulgaria, for the uh, Zeppelins that were used in these raids. Um, Kagol 1 was based just south of the Romanian border, first in Rosgrad, and then they moved even closer to Rusik. They bombed Bucharest, both of them, a number of times and conducted other raids. There was a lot of fighting in this area against, the, um, against Mackinson's Danube army, and so there was a lot of bombing there. And if you think that Palesti was bombed for the first time in World War II, you're mistaken. It was bombed by the Zeppelin LZ-82 um, that was based in, uh, in Temesvar, Hungary. 
Okay, so we're moving on now to French bombing in 1916. And this is another case of the party being over. Um, the French had to transition to night bombing because they just could not, their day bombers just could not survive in the new environment with the German fighters. They also made some other changes that I'll tell you about presently. The uh, image here is a, a Faré painting. Um, I think you'll remember the, um, uh, I hope you'll remember the Faré article written by David Beer in the last issue of World War I Illustrated. Uh, Faré was a, Henri Faré was a uh, uh, French Impressionist painter who actually flew on a number of, number of bombing and other missions. And what this, this image is depicting is um, it's, it's depicting the reprisal raid on the city of Karlsruhe, which we'll talk about a little bit more. Uh, and this image is courtesy of the National Air and Space Museum. The um, Military Air Museum has a wonderful private collection of Faré paintings. This is on the second floor of their main building. It is not well marked, but if you're interested in seeing some examples of original Faray paintings, as well as some limited edition prints, um, it's up on the second floor of their main building. The French introduced um, several new bombers uh, during 1916. Um, of particular interest is, um, is they, they built under license the Italian Caproni. Um, they built it in French factories and used French engines, so they used those for long-distance night raids. So this is one more country that's now using giant bombers. Um, they also built under license the Sopwith one-and-a-half strutter, which was a British design. And they liked it so much they ended up building more of that plane than the British did. They also created new bombs in 1916. The bombs that they had been using through 1915 had been um, essentially modified artillery shells. They were difficult to handle. Um, there were explosions where they didn't want them. And if the veins got bent on these bombs, then they wouldn't fall right. And so they wouldn't explode when they wanted them to explode. Um, so they created um, more sophisticated bombs that worked better and worked more when they wanted them to. In addition to switching to night bombing during 1916, there were also some innovative attempts to continue doing day bombing and survive during the day. Uh, one of these attempts was, was led by the, um, uh, the commandant of, uh, of Escadrille C-66, Capitan Henri de Carolee. Um, his picture is there. That is a Faré portrait. And you can see a limited edition print of that portrait at the Military Air Museum. Um, they were flying the Quadrone G4. Um, you can see one of those at the Air and Space Museum's Udvar-Hazy Center near Dulles Airport. And they were trying to do things to help them survive and continue daylight bombing when they could see what the heck they were hitting. So they did things like avoiding German airfields. They'd fly in the middle of the day or at dawn when they were harder to see. Um, they learned how to fly in formation so they could protect each other with their machine guns. So they did some really innovative things to try to continue um, bombing during the most effective time of the day. This is one of the things that, that has really intrigued me about World War I bombing is, is the innovation. Everything that happened was created from scratch. Um, and it's just fascinating to see the innovation in technology and in tactics. Um, that, ha that have evolved over the course of the war. 
So they also built a night bombing force from scratch. Uh, they had to develop certain equipment like uh, headlights so they could land at night. Um, they had to create cockpit lighting that didn't cause the crew to lose their night vision. So they couldn't have a bright light shining at their compass or at their, at their map or something. They needed diffuse cockpit lighting um, to, uh, to be able to, to, to read their instruments and, and still continue to, to function at night. They had to create navigation beacons inside French territory so to help direct them to where they're going. And they needed new skills. They needed to, uh, to take off and land with the light from, from oil fires. They had to learn how to navigate at night. They had to create maps that showed what the ground looked like at night um, because the normal maps that show what the ground looks like during the day are almost useless. So they were doing all of this innovation through 1916. The Battle of Verdun, of course, was the, uh, um, the biggest battle, the biggest French battle, actually probably the biggest battle of 1916. And so what were the bombers doing then? At the time the Germans conducted their surprise offensive on the 21st of January, 1916, they had only one bombing unit anywhere near Verdun because most of them were off being refitted with new planes and training to, uh, to fly at night. So they, they were kind of caught with their pants down when, when the, uh, at least the bomber force was, when the Germans attacked Verdun. And what they used the bombers for during the battle, which lasted most of the year, was uh, primarily the favorite target of World War I bombers, rail stations, rail lines, junctions, things like that. They also attacked troops and bivouacs, ammo dumps when they could find them. Through much of 1916, they had some day bombers and they had some night bombers, and they used primarily the night bombers for farther out raids because they couldn't survive going great distances during the daytime. One of the famous raids um, was the reprisal raid on Karlsruhe, which took place on a Sunday afternoon in June. Um, they were conducting a reprisal raid because the Germans had been attacking the city of Barleyduke from the air. So they sent nine Quadrone G4s, which don't carry a huge bomb weight, and there were only nine of them, to attack this, this German city. Normally, that amount of aircraft and that amount of bombs wouldn't have done much of anything at all, but they hit a circus on a Sunday afternoon. The casualty figures are all over the map, but the ones that I think are the most reliable indicate that 110 people were killed, 75 of them children, 123 wounded. These were just appalling figures. And in fact, when the French found out what their, their bombers had done, in this kind of attack, which killed so many children, they were appalled themselves. They felt a reprisal raid was necessary, but they didn't, it didn't go the way they wanted, let's put it that way. On the plus side for the French, the Germans did not bomb French cities again for six months. So this is one of the important raids of 1916. One of the other important raids, which I'll touch on briefly, was the Oberndorf raid. In the Oberndorf raid, they sent a large force long distance into Germany, 110 miles one way, to attack the Mauser factory that, that made German rifles. Very important target for the war effort. They lost over a quarter of their bombers. It was just a disaster for the French. Um, they were also accompanied by Britain's Royal Naval Air Service, which I'll talk about shortly. And um, so they also hit Oberndorf 
And one of the things they learned from this raid was that the only planes that had any chance of surviving during the day were the Sopwith one and a half strutters that they had and that the British had. And so that after that point, 12th of October 1916, no other type of aircraft flew during the day, no other type of bomber flew during the day until they developed new aircraft in late 1917. Our final topic is Britain's first foray into strategic bombing with the Royal Naval Air Service. Um, again, there's that naval, that naval connection with strategic bombing. Strategic bombing had been started in early 1915 by the Germans and by the French. Uh, the Germans attacking Britain and the French attacking uh, German industry, poison gas plants, blast furnaces, things like that. And the, the, uh, the British Navy decided to, to uh, work with the French and attack German industry. So they started what I think we could call an experiment. The painting here is by uh, Mike O'Neill, the president of the League of World War I Aviation Historians, and it depicts a, um, uh, a couple of uh, Sopwith one-and-a-half strutters, British Sopwith one-and-a-half strutters that took part in the Oberndorf raid. This experiment only lasted from July 1916 to April 1917, and they conducted 18 bombing raids. Most of these were against German blast furnaces, attacking the iron and steel industry. Almost all of them were also done in conjunction with the, um, in conjunction with the French Air Force. And I'm kind of go going to go quickly through, the other, uh, through, through a couple more slides. Um, the aircraft that they used were two versions of the Sopwith one and a half strutter, um, and the French also built both versions under license, especially after they learned that they were the only ones that could survive during the day. The, um, uh, the Royal Naval Air Service also started using the new British Handley Page bomber, which was a huge bomber. Um, it could carry as much as a, as a squadron of day bombers. They used them at night. And this will give you a picture of the 18 raids that they conducted. They were based at Luxiel and O'Shea. The Oberndorf raid was way out here, conducted by both the French and the, and the Royal Naval Air Service. Um, their final raid was a reprisal raid against Freiburg. And up in here, this is the Saar River Valley. All of these are really iron and steel plants, blast furnaces. So that was the um, that was the, uh, uh, their 18 raids during that time period. They stopped having a unit on this section of the front because of the pressure that was, that was being exerted against the British Army farther to the northwest. And they, uh, the Army and the Navy made an agreement to send the crews and most of the planes back to the German sector of the, uh, of the Western Front to assist the Army. And to, and to stop this foolishness of, of uh, strategic bombing. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.